Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. It's going to be a good show tonight. Um, first, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk. Please check him out on the internet. Look for Native Storytellers or Ken Quiethawk. You'll find him easily and you'll learn a great deal about how the first people uh, preserved their cosmology, their history, and taught morals and judgment to their children, which was a, an amazingly finer way than I think we do today. That said, tonight I have Gary Wayne back with us, and as always, I am so excited to have him here. He is a Christian contrarian who has maintained a lifelong love affair with biblical prophecy, history, and mythology. His extreme study has encompassed the Holy Bible, the Gnostic scriptures, the Qumran, the Gita, Gilgamesh, and other ancient epics, language, etymology, and secret society publications. In other words, he's fully loaded and ready to go. <laughs> um, he's an amazing author. This book was uh, this book. This show was originally going to be on his second book, um, which was uh, book two of of um, the Genesis uh, six prophecies. Um, but uh, they seem to have been slow in birthing, so we get him uh, to talk on on some very interesting topics like secret societies and royal bloodlines connected to globalism. Um, so so in a way, it's really cool because now we have him on an extra show, which is always a thrill for us. So welcome to the show, Gary. Well, thank you for inviting me back. I'm so happy to be with you and uh, very much looking forward to, to the discussion tonight. Well, I am too. I mean, it's, come on, secret societies, royal bloodlines, globalism, um, G20 and B20, the World Health Organization. 
I mean, come on. It's it's yes. great material. I mean and, and and if your book had been out we never would have gotten to any of this. So I'm so delighted you got slowed down. Yeah, it's a process, and you know I, I'm always in a rush, but there's a process to getting it done. But I think tonight's topic is going to be very, very good. And you know, I look at what's going on in, in the world today, and I'm sure everybody else is saying, you know, what the heck is going on out there? And we hear of all of these different meetings and groups and organizations, and it all seems to be just sort of so confusing if you don't take a step back from what the media tends to tell us as to what's going on and sort of connect the dots as to, you know, sort of what's really going on. And, you know, it, it's up to everybody to decide whether they think what, you know, some of this stuff is good or some of it isn't good, but we ought to be aware of what they're trying to do and how determined they are to do it. Well, I, you know, and, and there is that old saying that, you know, we have to be familiar with history or we're going to repeat it and it does feel as though we are going through cycles and and repeating in in a, a new way old habits and and old policies and you know when when we talk about royal bloodlines um I want to make clear to people what we're talking about where we where we go, you know, where they come in. I mean, secret societies, everybody kind of knows about, but when you say royal bloodlines, to to what royal bloodlines are you referencing? It's it's a very good question because it does go to the heart of what goes on in the world today and what's happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future. So when I talk about royal bloodlines, it is the royale. It is the uh, kings and the queens that aren't out front and center as what they were a couple hundred years ago, but yet are still very active in the background. And, you know, when you look at that word royale, you know, it comes from old French for roi being king and al, which is the transliteration of the Hebrew for el for an angel or a god. So they would call themselves Rex Deus or the kings of God or the black nobility is yet another name for the same group of people. And they take, it's a group of people that have an inner circle, just as in World War One, for example, you had basically a family civil war because they were all intermarried and cousins and they kept their genealogies and they would marry to ennoble those bloodlines to place themselves at a higher level within within the bloodline. So they take these genealogies right back to prehistory, right back to their ancient um, demigod fathers as they would look at them as so we would recognize them as Raphaim and Nephilim heroes and titans out of Greek mythology Anunnaki out of Sumerian mythology uh, names like the Zabalba out of the Kishamaya you know names like the Miosi out of China the Tengu out of Japan um, the Zuras and several other names in, in India. These are the ancient nobility class that controlled the world both before the flood and then again after the flood, whether or not one decides to rationalize how the giants show up after the flood as being a second incursion or survival or both 
but they do show up, and they show up in, in all cultures around the world, and they controlled the complete nobility class right from the beginning. So when we talk about the royales, that's the genealogies that we're talking about, and they're worldwide genealogies. I think there's a, a dominance today that is filled with a gap of dominance by the European bloodlines, but I think we're starting to see a resurgence of some of the worldwide bloodlines, and I would continue to sort of look forward to that. So, And just as you have coming out of prehistory with the royals, with the kings, both before and after the flood, secret societies take their history back to before the flood and to a very sort of important nexus point after the flood as well. So with the creation of uh, the seven sacred sciences, as they would call it, that were put into a discipline by one of their great patriarchs from the ancient Mason Masonic history, that would be Enoch, son of Cain, um, you had this knowledge that then merged with the knowledge from the gods or the fallen angels, and that formed the first what was called, at least from a monotheist lens, looking back at it as Enochian mysticism, named after the patriarch Enoch, who created the original mystical religion and the pantheons that ended up crossing the flood. And out of that, through the mystery schools to develop the uh, knowledge, because polytheism is a knowledge uh, religion at, at its heart, and in homage and paying homage to to the gods who provided that knowledge they developed the this knowledge through the mystery schools to honor those gods and also you have growing up within those mystery schools the ancient secret societies or the ancient uh, royal masonic uh, organizations and so this is the knowledge that pairs in the organizational structure both before the flood with the kings and the religion and setting up the nobility class with the bloodlines of of the created giants as in biblically it's in genesis 6 that and they take over the world and they're on a um, movement to create a world government but it's a bit of a military way of getting at it so in in the greek version you have atlantis with these 10 kings that are understood as the helm of the golden age and the center for uh, the burgeoning world government that is going on before the flood comes along and destroys atlantis so this is a worldwide story uh, in in all the different religions and cultures and then after the flood you have an event that takes place at a place called Babel, where Nimrod is provided the antediluvian knowledge by a fellow named Hermes, according to the Masonic history again, and uses that knowledge to create Babel City and Babel Tower and, a, and recreate the Enochian mysticism after the flood. So this is the beginning of the merging of the royal bloodlines with the secret societies after the flood because Nimrod is classified as the first grandmaster of masonry after the flood and writes the first constitution and he's at the kingship level and is intermarrying again with the giants and they're establishing these bloodlines that expand out with the dispersions of the people and we get that same account written in Sumerian with um, the uh, story of Enmerakar at Eridu and it's exactly the same story and you get the Babel story again around the world so you get a commonality of 
how this knowledge and these religions are, are spreading around after the flood. And it's those genealogies that make up the uh, the the black nobility or the rex deus, as we would call it, or the royals. And they've been involved in secret societies from, from the beginning. Now, just, just um, I'm wondering then, are, is, is our, the G20 and the B20, is this another aspect of the royal bloodlines coming into current society, or is this, are, are these different groups of people? These are what I call branch groups. So when I talk about the hierarchy of secret societies, and I talk about this in the upcoming book in, in, in detail, um, you have a trunk of a tree that would be more of a evergreen or a cedar of Lebanon tree, which might be a little bit more accurate, a little bit tongue in cheek, but uh, in terms of uh-huh. the branches that are coming down and it's, and it's an evergreen versus the elm tree, which would be more the genealogical tree that they use, but it's, it's the same what is, you know, was put out by, Rabelais in about the 1500s in his writing, and that's where the name comes from, from my research, is called the Tholemic tree. It has the roots that go down into the earth and it goes up to the sky, whether it's the genealogical tree or the organizational structure for the secret societies. And it's also known as the world tree as well. So they're using the same sort of imagery if, if that sort of helps people to get an image. And so when I talk about a branch uh, organization, it funnels back up and into the tree trunk. And that tree trunk is separated into trunk organizations. So you would have Freemasonry at the bottom and the first level of adepthood. The Illuminati would be uh, at the next sort of levels up. And if you're using the old degree system as opposed to the latter, you know, come lately, um, Scottish right degree, the old system is three degrees to be at, at, at at a, as an adept and then so above that would be the illuminati and if you're going to oversee lodges you have to be fifth degree and above the illuminati is the rosicrucians and at the rosicrucian level you get this nexus point of these rising people who have been invited into the secret societies who have genealogies and bloodlines that may be more diluted but they're they're invited back to be in those organizations and to learn the mysteries as polytheism uh, presents it and at the Rosicrucian level, you have that intersection of those, those adepts that are rising up and the purebloods or the royale. So at the top half is like 50%. Above that is the committee of 300 families. And then above that is the council of 33 families. And then the 13 families. And these, this is the Western organization. So the, where that branch of the... Um, World Economic Forum fits in, or the Davos Group, or the B20, uh, it fits in at the Committee of 300 Families. And so the Committee of 300 takes its name out of Greek mythology as the great Olympian gods. And they have 300 of them as it sort of comes back to them that are the, the top level of the gods in the hierarchy of of their belief system and this comes from 
uh, you know, the religion or the following of Dionysius. It also includes Isis or Egyptian worship. It has, a, as it comes down through their bloodlines, Catharism, Vogelmealism, Albigensianism um, is all sort of intermixed in it into the European sort of flavor of, of the families. And so these are all the black nobility family, and there's a black nobility of the larger European group and a black nobility of the Italian group, and it's important to sort of keep that straight. They all work together, but there's a special area cut out for the the families of the Roman bloodline that would be like the gens Julia or the gens uh, Claudius, and those bloodlines go back to the original senators of Rome that were the descendants of Romulus and Remus that started um, the bloodlines would be probably a few more that were entered in after that but those were the primary two and they were thought of as Raphaim or Nephilim and offspring of the gods so again same story and then the bloodlines in Europe are basically ones uh, outside of Italy are ones that have migrated out of Greece, migrated out of the Middle East, and have set, you know and settled in into Europe. So this is a group of families that are running things in the background. And when we look at the Committee of Three Hundred um, as being um, a group that is symbolizing. Um, you know, the gods of antiquity of 300 angels or 300 gods, and they're, they're, they're trying to create a new Eden, is what they would call it, or a new Atlantis, as the Rosicrucian Francis um, Bacon might, um, uh, well, did write and put it about. So it's, it's interesting that they always have this, these, this historical imagery that was... Um, that is used to sort of denote their groups and where they, they sort of fit. And this is uh, what they would call, I guess, the, the greater 300 families that whittles down to the top 13 as you go, go up the Thelemic tree. And what's also interesting out of Greek history is that not only do they look at 300 gods of the ruling class, um, there was also 300 that was the number of the guards for the king or the offspring divine representatives that we might understand as an antichrist or a messiah figure um, in, in, in a sort of a prophetic kind of understanding. And 300 was also the number of the disciples that Pythagoras had. So you see there's a consistency to the use of that, and they use that number 300 as almost like a trident, again, imagery that comes out of Sumeria and comes out of Egypt with Poseidon having a trident, and that's got three prongs on it, so it's like an allegory of three in one. So three zero zero still makes three, so it's three in one, and it's a perfect uh, perfect unity of the Tau, as, as that belief system goes, and uh, is associated in a similar fashion in Egyptian and, and Arianism as well, and similar types of meetings into Arian as we talk about that. So that's the allegory of it, and I'll just sort of move on to say that this is this is a group that affects a number of organizations. 
Um, so we have a number of branches that are coming out, and the World Economic Forum is is one of those branches. And then within that branch, you'd have several other groups as it branches out with the hierarchy, which is the higher level of the hierarchy at the center of the branch, and then higher up as it goes back into the tree. And so other groups that would be associated with the uh, Committee of 300 that they're involved with is the uh, Order of uh, Knights of St. John. Um, the the Jesuits would also be, as part of the black nobility representative, looking after that group as well from within uh, the church, which the Jesuits were given control of the banking, which is a very important part of that organizational yeah. structure. Uh, other groups that would be answering into the committee of 300, obviously the Rosicrucians that are immediately below them, um, but you also have the IMF, the uh, International Monetary Fund that's sponsored and run by them. The World Bank is run by them. The Bilderbergers, which is kind of a similar kind of organization that calls the lower level uh, money people and business people. But these, I would actually put the Bilderbergers or the people called in there a little bit higher up within the hierarchy. And they're trying to ascend into the group through intermarriage, through generations. So you're going to have people like the Clintons in there. You're going to have Bill Gates. And a lot of new money comes in there. But they get their marching orders from families that come from uh, the Committee of 300. The Club of Rome is another one that is uh, that answers through another branch, and their job is is to bring about world government, similar to the Illuminati, but at a level where there's 10 groups of nations to set up that new Atlantis. So that's kind of where they fit in, and so these 300 are the top sort of extended families of the royal families of, of Europe. So okay. I'll stop there and let you, you back in because I covered a lot of territory. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've used the term a number of times, and I want to make sure I understand what it means. You've called, you called black groups and things like that. You're not, you're not, or are you, if it's a black group, are you referring to their skin color, or is what does the black refer to? Well, that's what they call themselves. So the black nobility is obviously, if they're European, they're they're white. <laughs> um, yeah. And, but they, but there's but they, and it's particularly the black nobility of uh, of Italy that 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 greater name means because Rex Deus would be for me a more common. But I understand that the the rest of Europe also calls themselves the black nobility as well. That's just I don't know why they chose the color black, but everything is chosen for 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 a reason. So uh so yeah, like the black nobility out of Italy for example might include families like um the Orsini uh would be one one of the families or the Bracciano uh, the Piticoliano, the Colonna, the Massimi, uh, um, and uh, let's not forget Borgia, which was a, a very extensive family. Right. So it goes back to the Gens Julia and Gens Claudius, and basically through Julius Caesar and Claudius Augustus is the sort of funnel back into the history. There's a later black nobility that comes along as well that starts uh, that goes to Venice, and a lot of those are merchants and bloodlines that come out of the Middle East, and they're going to be intermixing, but they're not that ancient Italian black nobility. That's a transplanted set of bloodlines that come, comes out of the Middle East. Well, is, are these groups of elite, obviously, and, and um, 
noble bloodlines, are, are they put together, those that are pushing for one world government, one world everything, or is that another group? Well, they're all working directionally in that. Every group has a specific role and agenda. This would be uh, the Committee of 300 would be controlling a lot of that from a uh, monetary aspect. Um, that's their biggest th- uh, push on it. But you've got other groups, you know, like um, like the uh, Club of Rome, even though they answer into them, they're not really into the monetary and they're just they're trying to do the geopolitical thing. Just as the Illuminati spoke, focuses on world government as well at, at a lower level. But it's the, the main just based on the groups that um, they're working with are, you know, uh, money groups. Let's put it that way. You know, and you you start to see the, these oligarchs of these companies. They start to show up with companies like the East India Company that we might recognize from England. That was probably one of the largest corporations in the world. You had Hudson Bay Company, and they're kind of taking their lead from the Knights Templar who were the largest corporation and did that through banking uh, and set the modern tone for banking, which was also the organization that was the centralized version of all of these organizations that we're talking about, except for the the 13 families um, within the old Templar organization and understanding that you had had 33 invisible ones working at the top uh, of the inner prior of Sion organization that split away in 1188 and formed the Rosy Cross order and then built uh, uh, underneath them uh, uh, as the original invisible 33 Rosy Cross. They established the Committee of 300 and the Rosicrucians underneath that. But the Rosy Cross was original at, at the breakup of the, of the Templars was the original 33 invisible ones. So, so this these groups are really working above and beyond whatever the political and economic conditions are of any of the countries, and they're they're working on a whole new level in order to bring about control over over the world. Actually, what they recognize is that. If you're going to have a world government, you have to have more than just the government. You have to have all the institutions to go along with that. And that creates building a significant organizational structure to handle that. And so you've got what you have going on in the world today is like a lot of these different organizations or different lanes that are starting to merge together but they're still working sort of uh, almost in, in independently. And they're all trying to create certain aspects of what's going to form this world government and this universal religion um, that are going to fit together in a puzzle that they've envisioned. And, and actually they've been working on it for centuries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like thousands of years, <laughs> multiple thousands of years. So depending on how far back you want to go on that, but certainly in the last thousand years, it's been a more active, um, it's a more active uh, plan. And 
you know, the Knights Templar envisioned a what they called the new Babylon or the new Babels, where you had yeah. all the nations under under one ruler, right, and uh, and one one specific uh, umbrella religion, and that that's been the dream all the way through it's just it's very difficult to get there and you can't really get there through war so they're trying to build today a platform that will come together but there'll still be wars (laughs) as we lead up into this right there's still and there's still rivalries so it's never going to be totally free of 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 conflict and, and and rivalries but directionally they're all working in the same direction right around the world yeah, it, it it you know, but but then it makes you wonder. So so, if this kind of structure is there, what's the point of government? I mean, if there if there's this kind of power, um, working together. I mean, you've got you've got well, the finances um, in the Vatican, and you've got the. London having another aspect of it, and then the United States theoretically having um, the military aspect. So you have those three units theoretically working together, but you don't see any of it. I mean, it's almost like they're playing chess or something similar on a huge board and and you know we're just pawns and we get moved around according to what they you know they think is most appropriate it it kind of takes away well, the uh, i mean the concept yeah, that... of 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 religion it takes religion out of the picture completely and makes it all um an economic game that's being played yeah, and they're going to have to bring the religious aspect is going to be brought back in because that's going to be like the glue that holds things together. At least that that will be the plan. But in the meantime, they have to de- develop the systems and they have to develop the technology to to make this thing work. And as the thing that has been probably one of the most difficult things for them to deal with is that you know, for example, the U.S. doesn't always play ball, and they're the most powerful nation on earth. So they have to figure out how they deal with the U.S., and that strategy tends to be part of the greater strategy that they'll use for all of the West is not to lift everybody up to North American standard of livings, but to lower the standard of livings of the more richer countries to create a more equal society because they have no ability or no desire to raise everybody up. So that's that's the thing that you start to see as it's affecting the U.S. today is how are they going to um, satisfy some of those aspects. And then you've got rising powers, let's say like China, who says, I'm not against the new world order. I just don't want the Europeans to dominate that. So I, I see more of a bigger role for China. Uh, Putin is saying the same thing. They says, and, and we did a whole show on this, that they're looking for a larger role in that. And you're going to see that going on. So that's going to be the big challenge is, is how do they move this into a position? And so what you do is you do a number of things as you start to build international organizations and groups that are working together and keep 
building that process, continue to develop the technology so that you can bring the world into one. And then you're going to have to have things that happen and it's going to take wars or catastrophes to help with what they call the great reset so that they can be the ones that can go in and rescue the world from all of the problems that they actually caused. Okay, so that that was my next question. Just what is the great reset? Is that is that intentionally driving the world into such conflict that we need an outsider to come in and bring peace to everybody? And an outsider organization, not a person. Yeah, they don't I mean, they don't want to see this done through war, but war is going to be part of it. Um, Because when you start to do some of the things that they want to do is uh, it's going to it's going to cause chaos. It's going to cause, um, you know, problems worldwide. So they have seven major themes of their global reset. And I'll just give the, the the seven so people know what we're talking about a bit about it and you'll start to see some of these lanes uh, uh, I think people will start to visualize groups and things that they've seen so the first one is environmental sustainability or green socialism um, that, that left-wing environmental movement is as we all know very very powerful today uh, they want what they call fairer or equitable economy so again you have that sort of left-wing uh, ideology. So it's going to be what was termed as national socialism, but on a global global scale, run by oligopolies and the government. Uh, and the oligopolies will be the nobility elite. They want to create technology for good, technology to control uh, the transactions of the world and, and to control how free speech is uh, administered. Number four is they need to reskill workers for the future because a lot of this technology is going to put people out of work. And fortunately, they're not going to succeed at that. And you're going to see a lot more servitude and a lower of the standard of living. They want better business or a woke business. And you see the woke corporations right now, the oligopolies that are forming. They want number six is fair access to all. So equity not equality they want equity not equal opportunity they want uh, planned outcomes and they want to get rid of the meritocracy Uh, so again that will just sort of cause people to be relied on um, the government number seven is is they want to go beyond geopolitics so that means ending borders so that there's a complete ability to have a free flow of people uh, around the world no matter where they want to go they want to completely end nationalism and bring in world government and they're going to use catastrophes uh, as a way of bringing that uh, the opportunities to move things forward and at the end of that is number eight which isn't usually shown but they want to have uh, universal religion so the great reset comes in terms of the major thrust, likely not through war, but it may be uh, a part of it. But the Great Reset is going to be brought on is by bankrupting all of the rich nations. And they want to have government spend until they collapse. 
And I think we're seeing that as a fever pitch going on because they think that they're close to be able to doing this. I think they're quite a ways away yet, but um, they they continue to, to push in that sort of direction. And once they have a bankrupt government, you'll have, for the most part, a complete bankrupt world. And so that's where you get the reset that starts to, to have happen. And in return, because let me just sort of back up a step. So if we think that Elon Musk is really, really rich and whatever his on the books wealth is, it is nothing compared to the Royales, which is not on the book. And when I was doing research in the early 2000s, I was being told numbers of, at that time, the European wealth was, in the bloodline, somewhere between 300 and 500 trillion. You can only imagine what that might be today. And that this money will be brought back out um, once every, everything is completely bankrupted. And in, what they're going to do is they're going to say, we're going to bail out all of the governments. And then we're going to, all of the oligarch oligarchs that worked with us we're going to fund you so that you can dominate the new financial order so you'll quickly earn that money back for the average person they're going to take your debt away but you won't be able to own your house or anything like that for people who have wealth in the bank accounts just as we saw in malta in the 2008 go around couple of years later as it started to get worse they went in and took that money so the people who have wealth they'll take that wealth and reposition that money into the this new world order and they're going to do it in a sense of a religious sort of uh way of doing it that they want to be able to sort of bring in some of the religions around the world so as this goes on you're going to see a closer religious a manifestation, usually through prophets that are, will be coming along is how I see that happening. But that's, that's a different aspect. So they're going to have what they call a year of forgiving debts. And that was called a jubilee in Old Testament law. And so right. it's a 50-year of canceling all debts. It actually has a history in other places like uh, Assyria and places like that. So this is this is how they're planning on doing it. And unless uh, there is some sort of will to stop our governments who are basically all, for the most part, globalist agenda uh, orientated, just as, let's say, in Canada, where I'm from, you have when Justin Trudeau was elected, he said Canada was going to be the first post-national state of the world. In other words, we are no longer a country and we're going to be, I'm going to be working to be putting our, our whole systems and state of being and resonatra into the world globalist ideology. And he continues to, to work in that direction. So that's kind of how they've talked about getting us there is I believe they have to bankrupt the world to do the great reset. Well, that said, it doesn't feel like it's going to happen overnight. So, so much as, you know, um, we've talked about end times. Um, it, in a way, it, it does look as though, as though these are end times to a particular way of life. But with this, 
the powerful groups that are there bankrupting the the country isn't all that hard. Um, I mean, with with what we're sending over to the Ukraine, um, and with the fact that we're being overwhelmed with with masses of people coming in, not only from the south but from the north now as well. Um, I mean, it, it looks like you know they're well on their way to bankrupting the United States. Well on their way, and you know if you look at where the debt level is today, I think it's over 32 trillion. Uh, all of the unfunded uh-huh. monies that go into, you know, Medicare and and uh, the retirement programs, and just to service the interest on the debt today is costing, I think somewhere the last number I pegged out a month or so ago was 500 to 550 billion a year. And that hasn't been renewed at the higher interest rates because of the inflation that happens with all of the spending that is, is going on. It just starts to sort of spiral that you will have things that were look as bad as, you know, they'll start to look as bad as they were in the eighties um, you know, the Canadian, when I was uh, young, we were paying a third of our budget every year just on interest payments. And that's coming if the spending doesn't stop. But between the perpetual war movement of the globalists and the spending to bankrupt, you can easily see that ramping up faster than slower. And as it gets worse, you're gonna, there's going to be anarchy. But you're going to need some anarchy to form 10 groups of nations led by one family and one leader around the world. So it's going to take some catastrophes to bring that about. And that's going to include, I I was going to say, that's going to include not only wars that we're, you know, we're funneling more and more and, and going more and more into the European war right now, but. I mean, look what happened with a mild pestilence. I mean, it almost bankrupted the world, right? I mean, and it started this whole domino. Well, if we get more of that, and I think we're going to, you're going to see all sorts of things that are becoming possible, and a great reset is going to be offered by the globalists. And people are going to say, well, we can't continue this way because... You know, it's it's going to go down down the tanks. So, but that's the plan well, is, the, is to drive the cattle herd people into the open arms of the co- cat, uh, of of the globalists. They're the ones who create the problem and then present the solution. Well, at least in the U.S., the spending is all in the hands of of the government, which seems to be, you know, throw the doors open and give give away everything. Um, yeah, and 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 anybody who says uh, that we're going to limit the spending is they absolutely are destroyed in the media, and it's really hard to get serious discussions on that because um, people are you know they're saying well these guys who want to control the spending they're the evil ones well they may be evil but they're not wrong about controlling the spending. <laughs> No, that's that's the trouble, and I I think what confuses me so much is that, I mean, if they want to have 
a one-world order, shouldn't there be peace instead of wars? Or are they at the same time looking to diminish the population to a number that is more conceivably manageable? That is part of the, the process as well. They they want to be able to control the population and so that the elite can still you know, live a good life, right? So, and they've been talking about the population issue ever since the rise of the Club of Rome, which was one of their main topics, was overpopulation and the coming famines. Uh, and global warming was another one of their uh, topics that they introduced because it was nowhere to be found until they presented it. And, uh, you know, at that time, and I was in high school at that time, we were told we were going into a uh, an ice age in in, yeah. in school. So, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, uh, yes, I am that old. But uh, it, it's, it makes you wonder whether or not these are, you know, these are actually contrived uh, catastrophes that, that they're going to be driving. And so when we look at that World Economic Forum, um, for the first time uh, in October, they actually met as a group with the G20. And so they called the group that met with the G20 the B20, which was the Davos group. It's the World Economic Forum group, and people like Klaus Schwab um, you know, was there. And of course, they just the Davos just had their meeting. But in that G20 uh, group and representative corporations and bloodline money from around the world, that represented 80% of the world GDP and 75% of all world trade. So they have them all together. And you see more involvement today in the last few years at Davos with uh, with government people it would it when it first started it was all business groups but now it's uh it's a combination group so you're going to see that working more together more often and of course our friend Klaus who is uh you know he's low he's not one of the royal bloodlines he's just the leader of this group I mean he, ha- we, he will have royal bloodlines but he's not part of the elite group uh it's because they're just not they don't get out in front and lead that. They work things from behind. So Klaus Schwab, he, you know, decided that at the October meeting and then again in, in the January meeting that they needed to uh, re-double down, recommit to a plan for deep and structural change. And he called it, we need to now move more aggressively and more vigorously in all aspects of everything that they touch uh, to restructuring of the world. And so you have to think they, with that kind of statement that they think the economic side is starting to play to a point where it's going to work and coincide and mesh with, with their greater plan. And so what he said is is a great reset will solve a fundamental lack of social cohesion. So there's going to be the strong social citizen of the world aspect that they're going to want to try and create and have everybody sort of loyal. And I think it comes from fear from destroying ourselves from the face of the earth. That's part of the scare tactics that are going, going to go into it. And he spoke of an economical political, social, 
and ecological crises that is happening and is going to be getting significantly worse uh, as we move forward in in the next uh, year or so. And so I'm looking for some trigger things that will seem like they're disconnected, but we'll just start this this domino effect to let them start to move things more quickly. Because as we talked about earlier, they they continue to be frustrated at the pace that they're moving at to get this thing done. And this is a transformation of the world that Schwab talked about, and he called it a multi-poly world. And uh, it is a system that is going to give government full control of everyone everywhere. And that's sort of, again, I mean, those are strong platitudes, but we have to understand that they're working with so many different agencies and organizations and businesses, and they're all developing things that is is making them more confident that they're very close to bringing this about. Hmm. Well, you know, in, in every situation, you, you look at, you know, there's a bad guy and there's a good guy. Um, you have definitely shown where the bad guys are. Where are the good guys? I mean, if well, you're, you're talking you're talking about something that, and making it seem almost as though it's inevitable that we will have to be blended together as a one world order. I mean, yeah, how and, do you? And, and the people that and the people that believe that that want to bring this about, they look at it as a good thing that they are the good guys, and the people who are against it are the bad guys. Now, people who are against it, like me. <laughs> think we're the good guys yeah. and they're the bad guys. So, but it's like everything in this world, you have a choice of, you know, what you think might be better. And I think too much power in too few hands leads to totalitarianism. Um, but not everybody thinks, thinks as I do, or thinks that that necessarily has to happen that way. Well, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so it is a lesson from history, yes. Darn straight it is, yeah. But, you know, you, you look at this and you, you you make it sound almost as though it's inevitable and it doesn't seem to be that it should be inevitable. There should be another direction we could take it. I mean, world peace would help, but um, when you have places like China, like Russia, well, like us, um, you know, we, we're all for a power group so long as we're in charge of the power. And, I mean, even if, if you begin to, to blend it all, there has to be, there should be, it would probably be, you know, okay, so there's going to be a, a power hub Who's going to be, who's going to be throwing the switches? I mean, if it was America, okay, maybe that's okay. But but if it's Russia, not so much, or China, forget it. I mean, how how do you blend it all and not have, you know, somebody saying, you know, hit the hit the whatever button and blow it all up and let's start again because this is not working. Um, 
Well, and, and I think we're you... seeing some of that today. I think you're saying, like Russia is saying, I don't like the system that you're doing. It's too European-dominated, and I think China is saying the same thing. I think you're going to see two groups of uh, powers that form up, and you're going to see, as in the ten toes of, of the Daniel II metallic prophecy for the end time, five kings on one side of the ten that they're planning and five on the other side. And they're going to have to work together to a certain degree. But, you know, just getting down to those 10 groups is going to take some wars and catastrophes to 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 bring that together. So um, there there's this there's this overwhelming message that is continually being set out there is, is that we have to become one world. We have to get beyond our tribalism. We have to get beyond our nationalism. We have to work as one people or we're going to destroy ourselves from the face of the earth. So it's the common knowledge. But in the same time, the globalists seem to be also perpetual war. So what they're saying is, is we want this new world order, but we want to be individual groups want to be the ones who are going to dominate that. And that's where they continue to have the issue. But once you start this this reset of the world plan into play where it actually starts to bring down economies. I mean, everything is possible at that point, and you don't know which side gets the upper hand because it is it will be absolute chaos. Well, I mean, depending on who it is, I mean, you could have <clears throat> a dictatorship or you could have I mean, our mode of government isn't working, so I can't even say it, it should be. It should be um, a, a, a documentary re, a republic. I mean, it doesn't seem to be working either. So, I mean, the ones that really work, although it destroys the population, are, are the are the dictatorships. Well, and that's why you start to see even the democracies. Uh, there, the, there's such a strong movement within the democracies today to have a political system more like China, one party, so that um, there's not all of those polarities of, of stagnation in terms of getting things done. What's the problem with uh, democracies is when it gets split into two different camps and the belief system becomes so pure, nobody compromises. And democracy is based on the fact that you have to compromise because you're not going to control every seat and you're not going to control every voice. So you have to be able to uh, agree on common ground. The policies between right and left today, doesn't matter which side you're on, is basically saying we will not compromise with the other side, period. And it's almost like it's a planned tactic to help bring about that one-party rule. And you have media that is regularly out there in like a like a 90% level that is producing one-party politics in North America. And it doesn't matter whether it's the U.S. or Canada. And we, now we look, and we, and we look at another scenario, we saw that same thing happen in Brazil. And look at the anarchy that is going on in Brazil today. I mean, it's absolutely, it doesn't get much news because 
the media doesn't want to put the focus on that because that's a very similar scenario that's happening, you know, in North America. It just hasn't quite gotten to that level of left versus right and corruption that has em- entered into the elections. And, but, but it might be coming. It might be the same model. We might be watching the experiment there as to what's going to hit us. Well, I, something's hitting us for sure because, um, you know, to have the government say, well, the borders are closed and, and see all of the people that are flowing in, and now they're starting to flow in from Canada. I mean, it's not Canadians yep. that are coming in, but no. but people are coming from other countries and then coming through Canada uh, across the border because it isn't as uh, – of course, people are also freezing to death, which is a is a good deterrent. But um, you know, we've got it coming from both directions now, and um, it's it's horrifying. Uh, it is, and and, 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 and the answer it, and the answer seems to be to, to double down in the same direction. Right? It's never to resolve the problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean. When you look at the millions of people that have come into the U.S., okay, but we can't take care of them because we're sending so much money outside of the country to fight wars that aren't our wars. But if we don't fight those wars, then then we can't stop the the uh, spread of something that is even worse. So it puts yeah. us, you know, yeah. and it is, and and the thing is, is. And I think this is absolutely awful if, 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 if this is the real sort of start to that war in, in Eastern Europe, is you have a president today that right from when he was a vice president was poking Putin in the eye that he was going to bring Ukraine into NATO. And uh-huh. he said that repeatedly to them. And Putin always said, and I'm not defending Putin in any sort of manner here. I'm just saying this is this is what transpired. Putin said right from the beginning that taking the Ukraine into NATO is crossing the red line. But yet we're still poking the bear. And then you have that vice president become president. And he thinks he's probably going to do what I can't have happen, and he decides it, it works into his agenda as well or a convenient excuse, and the war is started. And now you have a plan where it's not to win the war, to defeat Russia. There's never ever, ever a plan. There will never be anything planned to go offensively into Russia. It's to create mm-hmm. perpetual war, and all that does is bleed the money. I mean, I think it's up to 140 billion that uh, the U.S. has now committed in, in um, about a year. I mean, it's just it's and it's just ramping up exponentially, but never in a way that is designed to win the war. It was like it's like fighting Vietnam all over the place. Only there aren't boots on the ground yet, but that doesn't mean there won't be down the road. Um, the, you know, if the, the 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 notion of getting into wars and not winning. It's just inhuman, but it just seems to be part of that whole strategy to bleed the West and to create anarchy. Well, in, not only that, but then we have the World Health Organization coming in here with, it almost feels like the World Health Organization 
created the virus and, and released it. it. It's kind of like they aren't looking after the world. They're looking to diminish the world, it appears. Yeah, they seem to be running uh, at least a uh, cover-up for what what happened over in China in terms of that. And it looks like it was a created, contrived virus. And it sounds like from what's coming out of Pfizer, they're working on that as well continuously. And that funding through the NIH um, has been renewed, only they're just now going to do it in different countries and you just wonder whether or not there's more of these contrived pestilences that are coming down. And the WHO is going to play a large role in terms of what they planned at this last meeting at the, uh, at the uh, G20 and, and the B20. And there was a fellow by the name of uh, Budi Gennady Sadakan, um, I think he was from Malaysia that was uh, doing the presentation. And uh, he was uh, suggesting that um, there needs to be a, a, a redoubling down of a digital passport, but centered around a vaccine passport going yeah, that's forward. What... And... Go ahead. Yeah, that. That, that's 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 something that you had written down. I was wondering, a vaccine passport. How how does that? It would it be well a regular passport that had the vaccine stuff on it, or would it be a separate passport to the one that we get to travel with? I think it, it, from the information that I looked at, it's going to be developed and run parallel. Uh, they're prepared to use a non-digital passport for a while, but you would have to have the backup documentations that wouldn't be in uh, the chip that's in the card. Um, and they have prepared a 132-page report on how they envision that this will be uh, created and, and rolled out. And so there was, uh, you know, the group, uh, at the meeting in October, uh, they they agreed to this 132-page report and a, and a collaboration around the world to to get get moving on it. And they want to build upon what they said the success of the COVID-19 passports. And there was all sorts of different formats all around the world that none of them were sort of kind of interconnected in, a, in an intelligent sort of way. But this digital passport will be shared worldwide using standards and verifications um, that are the same all throughout the world. And to do so, they're moving forward on establishing the global digital network for it to work on. And who they want to use in terms of the technology for that, they announced would be Alibaba, uh, and probably uh, Google and Apple in support, but Alibaba of China would be running um, the technology development from systems they already have developed that they use in China to track everybody's movement and to track uh, all sorts of social credit things in China that can also be linked into tracking the social credits of the, of, of the green movement. And so they adopted uh, this, this 
agreement to move forward on it to towards what they call the inter interoperability of systems that include the mechanisms that validate vaccination while uh, respecting the sovereignty of national health policies, regulations, and data share. But in the meantime, they've got another organization working with the WHO that is providing standards uh, for all of the countries. And we'll have to see because the governments are going to have to pass it. But if the WHO organization on the next pestilence isn't happy with the response, they will have the ability to move in and run it themselves. So you, you see, as I say, you see a lot of different lanes that they're moving in on this. But the digital passports are, are designed to create robust guidelines on uh, health preparedness. So to be part of this, and the countries that are going to accept it, and most countries are, they're going to have to be prepared to accept these guidelines, even though uh, it may violate the laws within the country. So one would expect that they would change their laws within the country to, to, to participate. And they're going to need this to ensure a global response that's coordinated um, so that you have this uh, ongoing perpetual global healthcare infrastructure. And they're going to be presenting this to the WHO meeting um, that's coming up, I think, in March. And they want the World Health Organization to accept this proposal, and they will fund the World Health Organization to start implementing this and getting it uh, worked through worldwide. So it's something that they're moving on quickly. So I think it's kind of be, you might imagine it like a Nexus card. I don't know whether you're familiar with the Nexus card, but it's kind of a parallel system to the passport. I have a Nexus card to get you through fast lanes and across the border, but this will have other things that are attached to it. So it's, and, and with the Alibaba system, when you start to get into the social credit aspect of it is if you don't hit the standards of environmentalism or whatever the government policy is, is you may not be able to get a loan. You may not be able to uh, go into certain places. You may not be able to go to your favorite sports event um, because if you don't hit that, that it's like a credit system. Um, if you don't hit that minimum credit score, you're just not going to be able to participate. So they're going to force people in with that. And that if you don't have this passport, you won't be able to move around. You may not even be able to move around within your own country very far. And if people think that that's, you know, not likely to happen, you know, during the last pestilence where I live, and uh, they actually shut down our area and had police out with roadblocks that you couldn't leave. Um, Believe me, they learned a lot of things in the last go around, and they seem to be doubling down on, on this. And when you start to get into this basic system, this is just the first level of an of a interconnected chip system that is going to link in all the other technologies down the road. Well, yeah, just... Who thought up the name? Because, of course, you call it Alibaba, and all I can think of is and the 40 Thieves, which would indicate to me that this was just an organization that was about to take away everything. 
Alibaba is a very large uh, Chinese corporation um, that works in the high tech end and uh, uh, is you know basically dominated by the Chinese government. The uh, CEO there uh, wasn't following government policy and he disappeared for about six months until he came back and uh, decided to uh, cooperate. So, uh, so yeah. But I get the I get the story of Alibaba and the, and the forty thieves because it's kind of kind of like doing the same thing, right? But uh, yeah. And I don't know how they arrived at their name. Maybe it has something to do with that. Who knows? It's terrifying. Um, and you know they did learn that you know you put you put something out that that threatens the entire world. Everybody's in the same box. And you know, therefore, you know, we try to uh, we we try to be safe, but it, they make it hard. They and, do, and know, and they shut people down who disagree with. I mean, what we saw on free speech uh, was absolutely atrocious, and that most of the misinformation um, was, you know, was being done in the media and most of the disinformation was coming from from the government you could put out and i did i put out government statistics um uh, that was taken down because it wasn't showing the narrative that they that they that they wanted in social media so you had social media working hand in hand you had and you had the fbi uh in the last week or so you know, bragging about the co- uh, the cooperation and the influence that they have on corporations now, and the FBI, particularly through the Twitter files uh, that were released, were basically they and the White House were basically and, and some congressmen were basically shutting people down left, right, and center, and they're the the social media companies were for the most part were cooperating hand over feet even though you know hand over foot even though they may or may not have thought it was right and one can only imagine that facebook and google were very similar in their responses now we don't have that transparency out there but hopefully we'll get it but we see a system that is working in a one party one belief system way and they're prepared to implement it so you get an economic problem you get catastrophes like famine or violence, uh, you get wars going on around, you know, all over the world. I mean, anything can, can happen and can move quickly. And it's that within that chaos is when they'll pounce. Well, so how does this fall into, um, of course, the end time prophecies? Um, and, and again, even though it's, you know, it said end times. I, I get I, I end times doesn't feel right, but 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 again, it does it does indicate. You know, the end of current times as we know it. So how does that? How does all of this play into the end times prophecies? Because I know that that a while back you said that you felt we were coming into the end times. Um, prophecies but 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 again you know the 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 end times is not a day or a week or a month or a year it's a it's a time frame that could take hundreds of years 
it it it, it, it might i mean we don't know i mean i think we we might be in the fig tree generation and for people who aren't familiar with that that's one of the signs that jesus provided for the end times and and his second coming that there's a specific generation and you have to know what ticks off that generation you have to know how long a generation might be so when i look at the fig tree generation i look at first of all what's the length of a generation according to you know biblical prophecy well we're not given that but we are given three time frames for a generation so you have like a generation that's talked about in the book of exodus which is 40 years and then you have a generation in the book of psalms is 70 years and then genesis 6 3 that limited the uh lifeline of uh, of the Nephilim and humans along with it to 120 years that came into effect after the flood because that's part of the flood story um, and the creation of the giants between Genesis 6-1 and 6-4, you have 120 years. So is it 40 years, 70 years, or 120? I think it's likely the 70 or the 120, but then we have to know what might be the start of that generation. So you have to be careful not to get ahead of biblical chronology because so many people have and they're proven wrong if we are in the fig tree generation i might suggest that it was with uh, the nation of israel taking jerusalem in biblical prophecy not only is the southern kingdom of judah back in the covenant land in the end time but they also have control of jerusalem and so end-time prophecy seems to have Jerusalem involved as an epicenter. And so that needs to be that needs to be in place. So that came about in 1967, but if it's 120 years, there's a lot of runway out there. If it's 70 yeah. years, that means we're going to need to get into the last seven years in the next 10 years or so. So things have to happen fairly quickly and there's still a lot of things to be built and we're going to need to see a world that is going to have a money system that's going to be able to work with this implant system and by the way the Davos people introduced in 2018 the concept of this implant system that people will demand to have and it will be delivered through the healthcare system and this implant system would be interconnected with this very high level of technology that we don't have quite yet um, that can reach into different dimensions. So it combines quantum computing, it, it combines AI, it combines all the ability to track people with a social credit system that Alibaba and Google and Apple worked on together. And it also, you're going to need a cryptocurrency that works in that level as well with quantum and AI. And that's the cryptocurrency that was, I think, developed and pioneered. And now you see the reserve banks moving all around the world to say, how do we take this in-house? I think that is the system that is being developed in this very, very advanced system down the road. And it has you know, a blockchain uh, technology to it where nothing is ever 
erased. It can't be erased. And so everything is tracked in that. So it fits perfectly with that other system that I think is going to be um, part of the part of the new system. So that tech, those technologies are still all kind of in separate lanes, but there's that nexus point to look forward to. So getting back to the timeline, um, there's a geopolitical thing that we've been talking about as well. And so what the Bible tells us about this fig tree generation is that there's going to be birth pangs or the beginning of sorrows, and these, these catastrophes will get stronger. They are earthquakes, pestilence, famine, and wars. And they're going to get stronger as this generation unfolds, and up to the point of the time of the opening of the seal judgments, at that point in time, as they're getting stronger, you're going to have 25% catastrophes of depopulation, of the you know 25% destruction of the greenery, 25% destructions of the fresh water, everything 25%. That's not Armageddon, and. That's still about seven years away based on end-time chronology from the Bible. And then you have the trumpet judgments after that that are 33%. So we're going to see catastrophes that are identical to the birth pangs because as they're recorded in Revelations 6 uh, with the seals, as with the trumpets, as with the wrath bowls, which would bring 100%, it's the same catastrophes. So they just get sort of stronger. So we're going to be thinking apocalyptic, but it, there's still more things to come. And as this, these contrived catastrophes start to work together, you're going to start to see um, more anarchy and more chaos starting to develop in the world. So that's why I say we might want to anticipate more of that. Now, biblical prophecy says there's two groups that are going to rise up at about the same time. You have these ten kings that are talked about as ten toes in the Daniel 2 metallic prophecies. You have the same number of horns that are talked about in Daniel 7 for the end-time empire. And you also have those same representations in Revelation 13, Revelation 12, and Revelation 17 for this end-time empire that Antichrist comes from in the middle of the last seven years. That last seven years comes from Daniel 9:27. Uh, for the last week of years of 70, which of 69 were completed with the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we know it's the end time because it tells us in verse 26 with the word end twice, that goes back to the Hebrew word ketz, which means the latter times or the end times, which is the seventh year, uh, the 70th year of one week of years or seven years where all prophecy, sin, and fulfillment are, are to come into fruition. So these two groups are Babylon and the Ten Kings. And so Babylon is the universal religion. We've not seen that yet. But it will have false prophets that it's going to send out. Uh, now, I use the term false prophets because that's a biblical term. But those will be prophets of the polytheist religion that is going to create um, according to, let's say, uh, Medjugorje 
uh, visions of Mary, which is seemed to me is kind of a development theme of one of the things we're going to start to see is we're going to see a reassertion of the dualism of polytheism and the mother goddess aspect. So this Mary type of figure initiated six children in the 90s and set a specific date for them to come out. Now, this may not be the set of the false prophets. There may be other ones in addition or ones that will actually come into play. But look at this as the model is what I'm saying. And they were initiated and provided specific dates to start to come out with 10 specific prophecies of doom. And it will be prophesied in a way that if you don't convert to the one true religion, then we're going to be destroyed from the from the face of the earth. And they'll make a prophecy, it'll come through. And then they'll make another one, it'll come through. And if it gets to the 10th one before the conversion, then the whole world would be destroyed. So you're going to have that religious sort of aspect that I think is going to start to reassert itself. Uh, and it is the one that is going to sponsor the Ten Kings. So I, I think before any of this world government thing really starts to come to fruition, you got to start to see false prophets coming through from Babylon. And then you need to see Babylon rise in power and start to reinvent the other religions or bring them home into the original polytheist religion that we talked about at the beginning of the show. And she's going to sponsor the covenant in Daniel 9.27. And she's the one who rides the beast of empires past in Revelation 17. She controls the ten kings. And so they answer to her. And she's the one that's going to be the one that's going to assemble all of these types of systems in preparation for Antichrist to come to power. So from a biblical perspective, we're in the birth or beginning of sorrows period if we're in the fig tree generation and I do think we're in the fig tree generation well you know is is it possible that the Antichrist is not really a singular person but an organization Well, I, I, I think you're on to something there, but not quite as narrowly defined. So the first thing is, is there's going to be many antichrists from a biblical prophecy perspective. And both in Mark and in Matthew with Jesus' oration, he tells us of many antichrists. And we get the same understanding in the epistles of John that there will be multiple antichrists. But these antichrists will be in play before the true antichrist comes to power right so they're going to be in play at the time of babylon and babylon is the one that is set up the beast system so when we talk about the beast you have the beast as an antichrist as he's described you have the beast in the bible that is talked about as the end time empire or the all the beast empires um, and you have the uh, the ten kings of the beast empire that are going to hand their power over to Antichrist. And you have the beast religion, which is that, you know, Enochian religion that we talked about that crossed the flood. 
Uh, and that's why you have the Babel allegory, because Babylon goes back to the Hebrew word Babel, and Babel had the archetypical Antichrist figure with Nimrod in a post-Diluvian understanding versus anti-Diluvian, because uh, you would have had the same thing happening back then, because nothing is new under the sun. And you had him imposing this polytheist religion over all of the people of Babel at that time. And so that was like a sort of a an ancient run of Antichrist figures. They're always trying to bring this about. There'll only be one that's going to be able to bring it about worldwide, and that's the true Antichrist. So Babylon is going to set up everything for Antichrist to take this over. So Babylon is going to set up this beast systems with the ten kings. And within those ten kings, you might expect... Some of them will be an Antichrist-type figure who wants to take over the world. So Antichrist is going to require another Antichrist-type figure to claim his credentials, just as Jesus defeats Antichrist in biblical prophecy. He's going to need an Antichrist to defeat. And the war is going to have to look like an Armageddon. So you're going to need a counterfeit Armageddon, and I think that's going to be the Revelation 9 war that a lot of people think is Armageddon. Um, it's going to look like Armageddon, but that's not Armageddon. It's ahead of the chronology curve in Revelations and other prophecy. That seems to be the war of Joel 1 and 2. It has the same type of beast. And that happens before Armageddon, which comes about in, 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 in Joel 3 in that set of prophecies. And I think it's the Gog war um, where you have that alliance of nations that has kind of a reflection of what's being built for those five empires of the East. That includes the Aryans, which can include the Persians and the subcontinent of India. You have Gog of Magog, which is Russia. You have Beth Pekarma, which is Turkey, um, which is making uh, more inroads and allegiances now with, with Iran and with uh Russia, as they go, I think they're going to pull away and join that group. And Gomer is Germany, and I think they leave the European Union because they need the resources of Russia to survive, just as India buys all of their energy for the most part, whether it's gas or oil from Russia as well. China is the other one, but they're not part of that war. They're part of the Armageddon War. So I think you start to see this starting to, to shape up. And somehow, some way, through all of this anarchy, uh, it's going to take uh, more than just a planning of the globalists to bring the new Babylon about. It's going to take the universal religion starting to rise as well. And where is the source of that? I mean, is it Rome, or is it Rome changing, or is it something above and beyond Rome? Well, I think it's going to reinvent Christianity. I think there's going to be a de-deifying of Jesus that comes along. I think you're going to have a, a massive split within Christianity, and they're going to have to do things to discredit Christianity. I would suggest they'll hit it at two levels. They'll discredit Paul as a false prophet, and I think um, they'll de-deify Jesus saying that he didn't die on the cross. And in companion with that, I would look at an epitheter rising in Rome, um, that is going to completely change doctrine in preparation for um, 
the universal church. But I don't believe Catholicism will be the universal religion. I think it'll be part of it. I just think we just see it start to bubble up through uh, the Mary apparitions and the Jesuit control of uh, of, uh, of the papacy. And that when we look at the word Babylon, when you take that back uh, from a New Testament prophecy where it pops up, it's an allegory for, for Rome in, in, in the book of Peter, and Babylon that, there and in the end time, I mean in the end time prophecy of Revelation, when you take that back to its Greek meaning, not only does it mean Babylon of the Middle East, but it roots back to Babel. And so um, Babylon, in that definition, is also defined as an allegory for Rome and was understood so uh, in the time of John. And it was also used by groups like the Essenes, because if you were talking ill of the Roman Empire, you were put to death and arrested and then put to death. But um, so I think it's going to be Rome. And in Rome... Uh, you have seven hills of the original city that Romulus and Remus set up. And Vatican Hill is outside that original walls of the city where the seven hills are. So it's actually a sister city of the Palatine Hill, or sister hill of the Palatine Hill of the original seven, and that's where the Sibylline prophecies uh, took place. So when it talks about in Revelation 17 that Babylon is going to rest on seven hills, I think it's talking about the seven hills of Rome. I recognize Constantinople also has seven hills and was the eastern part of that empire and may have a rising importance in the end time as well. But all of the allegory tends to sort of point towards Rome as being that sort of epicenter. But it's going to be a changed religion as it as 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 it get these as you get these revelations that are going to be coming through the prophets and they are going to absolutely reinvent um the catholic religion and then absorb so much of protestantism in it as they pull it towards the ancient polytheist religions that were all part of the beast empires isn't there a movement going on now to to bring closer together, possibly merge Islam and Catholicism. Well, you have you have a uh, working group between the, the Jewish people and the rabbis. You have Islam, and you have the Catholic Church. They actually have um, an agreement, an Abrahamic agreement, as they call it, and a city in Abu Dhabi where they're going to have the center of that. So they're yeah. trying to find ways to bring that all together. Now, just as with the World Council of Churches, with whom the Catholic Church isn't technically a member, they have a dozen major representatives there all of the time. All the churches in the World Council of Churches are being told that you're going to have to compromise, you're going to have to change some of your doctrine to get this to work. And as you get more information about this Abrahamic Accord, separate from the say, the accord the Trump administration was working from a political level, similarly named, don't know whether there's a coincidence there or not, there is, there is this 
<laughs> underlining. I know there's no coincidences in the world, so <laughs> I said that nope. kind of tongue in cheek. <laughs> and I get, I, I'm hearing things that they're all saying the same thing that somehow if we're going to make this work, we're all going to have to compromise our doctrines to bring that back together. And that is sort of setting the table to do the compromises into the other religions as well. Uh, and you see the Catholic Church that's working with the Buddhists and is making um, inward, they're making uh, inroads with meetings and overtures to all the religions of the world. So I think we're seeing that process beginning, but it's painfully slow but it only takes a prophet that is going to speak to all the religions with some sort of unknown authority that comes from the, the invisible powers and with the ability to predict a catastrophe that's been pre-planned to start to get people's attention. going to be interesting. I mean, I can see it is. governments. I can, I can see governments actually negotiating, you know, something to pr- pull them together. But when you come to a person's spiritual religion, that's a whole nother ball of wax to compromise on. It is. It is. And not everybody's going to uh, do it. So one might expect persecution worldwide, because I think in every religious group, there would be pushback, at least to a certain degree, right? So I don't think, no matter what happens, not everybody's going to want to um, change some of their belief systems. And I think there's going to be, this is my speculation, I think it's going to be like this great sort of umbrella religion, though, to recognize that it all goes back to the same beginnings and you can still celebrate your ritual days and your celebrations and your worship days the way that you wanted to do it. Um, Just as in the lower mysteries, you have almost a different kind of worship than than is at the adept levels. And I think it will be structured at that level. And certainly at the leadership level, at the adept level of all of these religions, um, they will all worship the same pantheon. Well, that's what happened when Constantine said, you know, this is our state religion. Everybody became whatever, but they had their personal deities at home and they had their idols at home. And, you know, the, the norm, the, 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 uh, the, the, the public on lower levels, um, just continued to worship as they pleased. It was the elite that had to, that had to convert. And, you know, the servants and stuff like that, they didn't count, so so they didn't care. Yeah, so I, again, I would look at it as, as something sort of similar. And, and Constantine based his uh, system on what happened just a couple hundred years before that in Persia, uh, where Zoroastrianism became the state-sponsored religion to unite the empire. And that's what, what Constantine was trying to do, was he was trying to create, uh, as he you know, took over the empire in war, he wanted to have a religion that was going to bind the empire together. So 
he had raised up Christianity, but then brought in Mithraism and some of Egypt, Egypt's religion and so Invictus and sort of made a homogenous type of religion. You know, at that time, you move from the Sabbath of Saturday to Sunday, which was, you know, the, 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 the holy day of, of, of Mithra. And you have uh, December 25 being introduced as the birth date of Christ, but that was the birth date of Mithra. Uh, and you have this, uh, just as some quick examples as to the homogenization and the rituals that were brought in because he was trying to satisfy all sort of aspects in a new religion. I would expect a similar type of thing being reinstated because again nothing is new is under the sun it's going to have a similar appearance to how these things have happened in the past what will that do to all of the um structures that are now devoted to the different religions i mean the temples and the cathedrals and um you know the the holy places I mean, does that close everything down to open up one great place for worship? Um, well, I think I think you'll see a little bit of both. Uh, but I would back up a step and say, so, I mean, if you look at all the great cathedrals in Europe, for example, um, they were built on ancient holy sites that were polytheist. Right. Um, so... There's a strong tradition where that happens, and I'm not saying every church is built on some sort of ancient polytheist, but there's a strong uh, history of doing that. And if we look at the revolution in France uh, with the French Revolution, they had a dechristianization go on, and then they uh, basically instituted a... Babylon or a polytheist type religion, and it was more Egyptian sort of uh, orientated as a, almost like an Isis type of worship. So expect again that mother goddess thing to sort of reassert themselves, but they just changed the language uh, for what they were preaching within those churches as they changed it to, you know, basically it was the church of reason. Uh, so it's again that knowledge. Uh, aspect to the the polytheist so the you know gnosticism is a religion of knowledge as they would define themselves it's all the same ancient religion it just has different connotations of different vernacular names around the world so i would expect and i cover off in 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 my first book what happened in uh the the christian churches uh in in the french revolution and it's uh it's a it's a startling thing to sort of look at say okay how would that happen now you would have to have similar things that would be going on in islam which might even be a more difficult thing to do so the things that it's going to take to convince the people of of these kinds of religions to to move in the direction of this common sort of world religion it's going to have to be stunning it's going to have to be spectacular it's going to have to be you know supernatural preternatural it just can't be something that people could dismiss easily right or deny uh only those who are totally devoted would and they'll be considered mundane 
They will be considered not worthy of the new world because what will happen will be so convincing, you have to be an enemy of the state not to believe this. And I think that's the level that it takes to get there, and I think that's what's coming. So you've got people here organizing this movement, and yet they are going to have to depend upon something otherworldly in order to convince the entire populace. Yes. There will be signs in the sky. There will be disasters, and the false prophets will be prophesying. Um, that's what it's going to take, and it's going to have to be worldwide, and it's going to have to be able to resonate and be talked about in a way and in a common language within those religions that can bring them in. Wow. Well, it looks like the future is going to be very interesting. Um, It is. It is, and... It's like I say, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it is kind of exciting, but also it's kind of you know it could get pretty, pretty, pretty rough out there too. And you know, I've been a prophecy buff for forty years, and you know, the biggest mistake that I see people do is they get ahead of what is actually taking place, Um, and. That's when you start to get things wrong. We get a chronology, but that timeline, yes, it has to happen within a generation, and we have to pick the right generation, but so many people jump to, well, the rapture has happened, or we're in the trumpet blast now, or we're in the seals. Well, no, I mean, you can't just jump over everything to get there. And those catastrophes are all the same. They keep repeating. It is getting stronger. So we have to be very, very patient and we have to be very very sort of logical so that we don't lose our credibility uh, because um, if if you're on the side that says as I am that I don't think this is a good thing then we better be accurate <laughs> otherwise we're feeding the other <laughs> side and we're and we're losing credibility so um, and like I say I mean for world government to come around for a universal religion for the people of Judah for the first three and a half years of the last seven to be permitted to begin their sacrifices again on a wing, an extremity, or an overspreading, depending on which English translation you're reading from in the book of Daniel, uh, on, on a wing of the temple, is going to take the cooperation of the people of Islam. And so it's going to be something that has to be supernatural to bring that about. So I think you're going to see um, more activity from the gods or the fallen angels, as, as I would call them. I think some of them might be, and part of that hierarchy might be described as beings from another planet. Uh, and again, in the alien mythos, Anytime you see the entertainment on that, as soon as we officially find out that we're not alone in the universe, we form world government and we have the same belief system. 
so I don't think it's quite that simple, but that's what we're being foretold through that type of literature and entertainment is going to be part of the mix. And I think they need to find a way to, from a Christian perspective, I think they need to find a way to explain who these beings are and why they're here. And so what we get told won't be the whole truth, but I think that's just part of the things that we can't imagine until it actually happens it will be that severe. And that's part of that great delusion. And it's going to be so powerful that even the elect will be deceived. So only those who are fully, from a Christian perspective, fully conversant with their scripture and hold to it won't be deceived. Our church leaders will follow the New World Order and the New World Order religion. Oh, yeah. Well, if they don't, they lose their power. So, you know, that's that's a given. Um, yeah, and most, people, think, and, and most people don't think that that's a given, but it, it has to be. Otherwise, it, it won't, won't work. So, of course, it's going to be. And power is what you get through organizations, and that's what organized religion has become, is just a way to control the people. Man, and, you know, well, Hitler was Catholic, but he reintroduced paganism to Germany. Yeah, so that, that's right, Church. It, that took it back. Um, and that's a, that's a great I, it, sort of analogy to the end time is what happened with an Antichrist-type figure. Yeah. Um, it was fascinating, though. He never renounced his Catholicism. He stayed a Catholic all the way to and through the end, apparently. Well, he, he so developed the Rice Church, which was Ariosophy, was Arianism of Theosophy. So it's a rogue version of Theosophy. And in that yeah. church, they they recognized Jesus as a blonde-haired, uh, blue-eyed, pale-white-skinned Arian prophet. Uh, just as Jesus is accepted as a prophet in a lot of the global religions, but not as a deity status. And so yeah. he, he, he sort of changed the religion in a manner that uh, is kind of similar to what I think we should, we should expect in the end time. I don't think Jesus is going to be dismissed. He's going to be recognized as... I mean, totally dismissed. He's going to be de-deified, but I think he'll be recognized within the religion as one of those people sent along the way to help humankind evolve into godhood. So he's going to be like Buddha. He's going to be like Muhammad. He's going to be like Confucius. I think that's where they fit Jesus in, and that will be acceptable to a lot of the church leaders who don't you know, actually believe the Bible is accurate or literal anyways, so. Yeah, no, that, that, you you can't take everything away from everyone. You've got to give everybody a piece that makes them feel like, you know, there's, it's still a part of their own philosophy. And, uh, yeah. boy, that's going to be interesting. So they're going to have yeah, to put out another is. Bible or something similar. They will, absolutely they will. Um, they'll and they'll reinterpret the Bible. They'll 
they'll interpret it through uh, the Gnostic approach or the polytheist approach where it's not literal. It's you have to understand what's embedded in there and the allegories to understand the true meaning. So uh, look for the allegorical approach to become more predominant as opposed to the literal approach. I was uh, thinking as well, just sort of popped into my mind of some of the things that are done to help people kind of prepare for it or give you a kind of idea. You know, there's a uh, monument that's at the UN these, this, uh, that was built a year or two or so ago called the Guardian. Of course, the Guardian is just another word for a watcher angel, right? That's yeah. part of the definitions, right? And so you have this guardian beast, and it has uh, two wings, and it is uh, similar. It's like a, a stylized leopard, so it's more in the Kisha Maya style or the Aztec style as a, as a jaguar head and body. It's got a lion mouth and four claws, and uh, it it almost is identical to the uh, description of, of the beast in, in the book of Daniel with, with the leopard. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. And that is, the, uh, that is part of the analogy of, of Daniel 8, where the Antichrist will come out of the Greek Empire even though it has four parts, comes out of one of the four parts. So it could be Rome, could be Greece, could be the Egyptian side, or it could be the Middle East side. Um, but it's just amazing. They just set these types of, uh, of images out there in preparation, and it just seems to be like, you know, it, it, it feels like they're, they're just trying to foreshadow and prepare everybody for what's coming. And so that they can explain it in pieces and then just sort of keep moving people in, in that direction. So just it's, it's just amazing that you, you start to see something like that that would be so biblical in its, uh, in, in its imagery. It's just, it's just crazy. Well, you know, the Bible is old, a thousand years, 1,200, however many, give it a thousand years for sure. And throughout time, haven't the end times been, you know, predicted? You know, we're, we're, we're going to, you know, this is the end times, the end is near, you know, prepare, prepare. Yep. That, that old, that, that over over. poor guy in, that poor guy in, in uh, New York City, you know, with his sign, you know, he's <laughs> probably had to replace that sign a lot of times. But, you know, the end has been justifiably predicted over and over and over and over again. What makes yeah. this time different? Well, um, in every generation or anybody who makes solid predictions, they, they just think that the events that they that are seeing has to be that apocalyptic nature. Uh, but it also, you know, from a Christian perspective, I mean, it has to be like the days of Noah. So our technology has to catch up. There has to be things that are similar to, to the days of Noah. And you can't try and ignore passages from a Christian biblical perspective that are inconvenient. So you, things have to be in place. Things have to happen. 
And so you can, the most you could say at any point in time, because nobody knows the exact time anyways, um, is, is that it appears that we're moving in that direction and there's more and more things lining up. Um, I mean, the term New World Order, I mean, that's been talked about for over 100 years of the order that's being set up. So it's not like they weren't trying to either get it done or they were just ahead of their time. Um, but it didn't happen then. And there's an ordained time. And until that time is permitted uh, from a Christian perspective, then it can't come about. So no matter how hard they try, it's going to have to be at the time that's been preordained. Now, having said that, I think when we look at the technology that we have, that we look at the geopolitical nature, we look at the communication all around the world, we look at the rise of some of the birth pangs. Now, they're not all working at the same time, and so that would put us still in the, in, in the sorrows point if we are in the fig tree generation, but we certainly can never look at where we are today and say that we're at the seal point because there's just too many things that haven't been fulfilled yet. And a lot of people like to, in some of their approaches, they just like to wipe the first three and a half years out and say that happened at the, uh, at the time of the Jerusalem um, destruction. Trouble is, then you have to leave out a whole bunch of biblical passages uh, that says, no, that's not the case. Like the first three years, in, that's prophesied in Daniel 11 from about Daniel 11:21 to about 11:30, till you get to the abomination with the rise of Antichrist. I mean, that just you just can't ignore things if you think that the the word of God, you know, is not wrong because that's the, our whole belief system. Like so. From a Christian perspective, you can't get ahead of things and you can't just wish away some of the prophecies. Everything has to fit. But directionally, it's moving in that direction and it's moving in that direction faster. And we're starting to see more and more things starting to come together. And I think technology is the last piece to put together this beast system and this implant system. And again, people have been saying from the 80s that the UPC code with the 666 on it was it. They're not totally wrong. It's just that that was an early vision. I think that 666 is part of the B system. You have that uh, binary system that's going to be part of this advanced system. And one expects that 666 to be in it, but that was, that was not going to be this complete system that's interlinked everything in the world because this whole system is going to be designed to link you into the quantum universe it's going to have you connected into as they're promising a connection and a direct link to the divine essence to the atma uh, that is talked about in, in in the vedas and that this system is going to permit you to have access to all kinds of knowledge and that this system is going to give you um, health that is automatic that's connected to this larger system we're nowhere near that yet now that technology seems like it might come together as a nexus, but we don't know how long that that takes. So we have to be to be careful in terms of the chronology. So always be on watch, and I certainly am, and I certainly think we are in the fig tree generation, but 
we don't want to get out there too far on that limb because too many people have had that limb cut off from underneath them over time, and they look very bad in hindsight. Yeah, well, you know, I, all of those technological things are <clears throat> are possible through independent consciousness rising and don't require electronics to make them happen. I mean... There is that aspect as well. I mean, if you have it electronically oriented, then you have a way of controlling the world. And if people go That's about the it key. in a spiritual way, then they can't be controlled. Yeah, so, it's, it's not about the divine essence from an individual perspective. It's as you nailed it. It's accessing that divine essence, as, as, as I understand it's called, um, from a control perspective, which requires that implant system and that, that tracking system and that control system that goes with it. So you're right, but to do it on a worldwide scale uh, in the manner that they want it implemented requires that technology. Yeah, and everybody wants a free ride and not have to work for it themselves. Yep. I mean, that's just that's human nature, unfortunately. Yep. You know, you can work on it yourself. You can work on yourself. You can get to that place in yourself. There, there are Taoist monks that can do most of that stuff already. And, and yet, you know, having a chip put into my, my skull and, and giving it to me that way seems so much easier. But, but again, you then are under, uh, under the control of, another entity yes this is, well i i'm right with you i'm i'm eager to watch the whole process myself and uh hopefully avoid being a part of it <laughs> well and it's going to play out in a way that you know it's hard as i say it's hard to imagine or anticipate and it won't play out in the way exactly that the people that are trying to bring it about it won't play out that way either so it's just one of those things where, you know, it, things are going to feed off of each other, but is there any real control on it? We know where it ends up. Uh, I think well, from a Christian perspective, we know where it ends up, but it's not going to be in the way that everybody thinks it's going to. And, and typically, end time, you don't get prophecy correct anyways. They, it doesn't come about in the way that they sort of mentally imagined it. So you have to be paying attention to the details and that um, we're all going to be surprised to a certain degree. And I, the thing that I think will be absolutely unpredictable is is some of the things uh, that if we're here to see it, um, that we will witness. It will be absolutely so preternatural that it will just be mind-boggling and mind-numbing, I think. Yeah, well, that said, um, we are out of time, but I want to thank you again for a spectacular show, and um, I'm going to put you on speed dial just in case. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for, for all of this. I, I Well, thank this you. This has been phenomenal, and uh, I look forward to your book coming out as well. And. Uh, we will get you back on here again soon as things begin to progress for sure. Yes. Awesome. So, so th 
And, of course, you have your website. You want to give that quick because we're almost out. Yes, my website is the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6 with the number 6Conspiracy.com. And on that website, if you go to the media page and you wanted to contact me, ask me a question, or get some information on some of the things I was talking about, it, you just click on the line that says uh, to contact Barry Wayne for an interview. That takes you through to my uh, email. And uh, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters of my book on that website, so you'll get a good feel for whether or not it's the book for you or not. My new book will be marketed also from the same website for signed copies on the website. Uh, if you wanted to get a, purchase a book, you can get a signed copy from me. I have a U.S. page, I have a Canada page, and I have an overseas page for the rest of the world, no matter where you might be listening from. Um, and that's the way you get a signed copy. But if you wanted to link over to barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, or amazon.ca, you can from the Buy Now page, as well as over to Kindle to get the digital version. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and, and good night. <laughs> Okay, everybody, thanks Thanks so much for joining. Um, please, this is going to be out on YouTube. Uh, check it out there, subscribe, and uh, keep watching for us because we'll be back again. Good night now.